This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Janflone. Hey, how you doing? So today we're going to go into the all things related category and uh, do something immigration related by way of New Zealand. And uh, that would be to comment on the shooting of Tumas that was live streamed in New Zealand with the primary relevance being The Great Replacement, which was the name of the shooter's manifesto. So I have uh, plenty of ways that that's relevant to me. Part of it is I do research extremism. But more to the point is I have lived in New Zealand. I was there 2003-2004. I had a work visa. I did work there. In order to get my visa, I had to follow a few rules. And when I was there, they wanted to know if I had $2,000 in my bank account. So, you know, not the uh, easiest place to get to, especially when it's in the middle of the ocean, not near anything. Like, it's a very different place than Europe or the United States, which has a lot of southern border that people who are desperate can get to. This is New Zealand. It's also a country that around 12 or 1300, the Polynesians moved to and became known as the Mari. A lot of them wear these very deep tattoos and they were a warrior culture and at least some of them were cannibals. So, you know, they weren't the kind that you just walk over. Europeans arrived uh, 17, 1800s and, uh, you know, now there are lots of Europeans they were the first country to give women the right to vote. Did you know that, JJ? I actually did not. Yep. And uh, they've had to grapple with race in a different way. They may not be as far along in that category as they think, based on some of the feedback I've heard and from being there. But they are a small country of, uh, last I checked, between 4 and 5 million people. And they've had to grapple with it. Like that, they have a small space and uh, only so many people in that space, and they better find a way to deal with it. One thing that was notable, this was my initial reaction to the event. It really emotionally affected me because I lived in New Zealand and because I saw their multiculturalism that they've had for a long time. But also, their, the New Zealand rugby team, the All Blacks, which is not a racial reference in that case, they do the haka, and that was my only way to respond. I just didn't know what to say on Facebook or anything. So I'm like, let's show the rugby team, which is already people of multiple ethnicities, let's show them doing a war dance. It's also why applying the Great Replacement, which I'll get into a little bit, is kind of a absurd application for New Zealand. Well, and if I, if I can jump in, one of the things that... I always that I find quite interesting about New Zealand and and where I come from in terms of like the research I do is that New Zealand has been one of the countries that's reached out to the small island nations that are currently being uh, destroyed via via climate change. And so New Zealand and Fiji have really been states that have stepped up in terms of not only accepting refugees worldwide, but like accepting climate refugees and actually offering, Uh, territory to individuals from places like Kiribati and and Tuvalu to try to to give them uh, a home. And 
while there has been some debate amongst native New Zealanders and, and expats New Zealanders and then indigenous New Zealanders and indigenous Fijians and things like that, New Zealand's really had a, a very like open and welcoming thing for the people of these states. And that's been, I, I, I think generally like they're brought out a sort of an example of, of statehood that's sort of been quite open to not necessarily redefining sovereignty, but but opening up their borders to individuals. New Zealand's also important for human trafficking purposes because of their status on like decrim and things of that nature. But in terms of like illegal immigration, like something that the estimates vary, but like uh, overstays in a publication in July 2017 had like 11,000. Like it's a pittance compared to the United States. Yeah, I, I research extremism. I'm very familiar with far right rhetoric. And uh, this one just got to me, JJ. I just, mm-hmm. It's it's just so discouraging. Yeah, I think particularly the fact that it references like the use of internet memes and things of that nature. That's that's hard. Yeah, and that uh, made it very indicative of the alt right, which uh, is into memes and other things. But the the manifesto, which I skimmed before it was taken down, is called the Great Replacement, and its initial focus. Even though there was an anti-Muslim component, like that was a instigating factor in his radicalization, is his interpretation of events relating to Muslims and Muslim extremists. But he started off with, it's the great replacement, demographics, integration, race mixing, like that's what he's talking about. So the great replacement is... uh, Influenced by books like Camp of the Saints, which is a favorite of uh, Steve Bannon and and Steve King. It is uh, a very racist book, even though Steve King wonders why the left considers it racist. I might mm-hmm. talk about it in the future uh, as relevant to just immigration and to demonization of immigrants. And demonization of immigrants is relevant to marginalization and marginalized people can more easily be exploited. But it's a book that uh, one of the main low immigration organizations, FAIR, their founder, reprinted the book. He himself was a racist and a, and a eugenicist. Never a good combination. No, generally that doesn't go well for people. Yeah, and uh, they have had a few known white nationalists on staff. I verified that by looking at what was claimed, and they did. And uh, one of the board of directors of FAIR was at the signing of the veto right after the New Zealand shooting with President Trump. I doubt he knew that. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of issues with immigration that can be debated, including with a country like how many people do you take in? Where should they come from? How, where are they going to work? How many people should you take in as refugees? How do you deal with the legal immigration? What effect does that have on your culture and your economy? I think there is a way to talk about all those things and have it be a fair conversation and a legitimate conversation. The Great Replacement takes that and puts it on hyperdrive. So things like white genocide, that concept, which is a ridiculous use of genocide, is that they, which is usually Jews, are trying to mongrelize Western nations and bring in foreigners, meaning like black and brown people, Mm -hmm. that will dilute the Western gene pool because the West is the best or the West is us or however they want to frame it. And that 
bringing in people as both invaders and as people who will have babies and be and then as uh this person the the shooter talked about you know lower birth rates and white people not having enough babies that eventually letting all these people in will dilute white western culture to the point where it will just disappear and white people will disappear because they'll all be mongrelized as they would think and there will be no more western christian culture like that's the essence of the great replacement and in books like camp of the saints which uh i've read twice (laughs) i had to read a second time to take notes what stands out to me is a portion of the book where it portrays the people on the boats like after they already like walked over people who were trying to help them and killed them because you know they they're so third world that how can they not you know they don't know what they're doing and stuff that they need fuel so it shows them all pooping on the boat and then rolling it and then lighting it for fuel for their food mm-hmm. and then it follows that up with a mass orgy of all the people on the boat women children men everybody together the refugees not dehumanizing at all. Oh no, not I mean, but I mean, and we've we've talked about that too when we've talked about um, when we talked about refugees in general and, and their travels is that these are things that people have to resort to for for movement. Well, in the narrative, like only two weeks ago, I pointed out that Laura Ingram, Fox pundit, was saying something that was in line with the Great Replacement. She was using different words, but she was echoing the exact same thing. Tucker Carlson has come at it from multiple different angles, and he has an audience of 2.8 million people a day. Steve King, who at least has been condemned after he made numerous white nationalist talking points public, Mm -hmm. has explicitly endorsed the Great Replacement as an idea. Even after the event, Frank Gaffney, who has connections to John Bolden, and Ted Cruz has come out and basically endorsed the great, great replacement idea. People in the mainstream might be a little more nuanced about it, but I just find it highly discouraging. And I find it annoying to read multiple media reports that are making this primarily about Islamophobia when that's a component, but that's not the main frame that we have to deal with. And then talking about it as if the concept is not being mainstreamed. Yeah, no, and I think that this this is apparent too when we've talked about some, like in our other podcasts where we've primarily focused on rhetoric and sort of the spread of rhetoric or the spread of like human trafficking myths. It's that it doesn't take long for things that are sort of fringe to enter in the mainstream, especially if you have a large internet audience. Well, there was a title of uh, a 1A podcast, and Josh Johnson does a really great job at, at being more balanced and getting more voices than most podcasts and radio shows. But the title was, What Can We Do About Online Extremism? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. the ideas are out there, and some of them are somewhat mainstream. They may not be as blatant, thank God, but the ideas are out there, and most people don't act on them. But what we don't want to do with this type of rhetoric is we don't want to legitimize people who already believe in 
big conspiracy theories that are dehumanizing. And when our leaders do that, it's dangerous. But in terms of like what what do we do about rhetoric where we demonize people trying to get here and we impute all these motivations from whether it's a George Soros or whether depending how insidious the ideas are, like I'm not sure how we as a society are going to grapple with them. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think we have a solution yet. Uh, because I think it, it's still very much a debate of if it's a, if you can even consider it an issue or not. Or do you consider this something that you don't? As far as responses of things that we can keep in mind and try to be careful of, anytime politicians or media on any side use language where they make th- threats imminent, that's dangerous. You need to be careful about demonizing people who are trying to get here or who are looking for a better life. Whether people should be here or what our society should do for immigration policy is a separate question. But in general, like meeting people who are different, getting to know Jews, getting to know Muslims, and even saying that there are different types of Jews and different types of Muslims, just as there's different types of Christians. Mm-hmm. Like as far as improving society and dealing with extremist narratives, like one of the things I was thinking of is conspiracy theories are out there. Like, and when I say that, I mean like big C conspiracy theory, the millennial long, that this is what these people are doing in order to bring down society or these, these people are invading those sort of narratives. There's a lot of people who believe those like alt-right websites um, going back a few years ago averaged about a million visitors a month. They're not all American, but you know, it's mm-hmm. a fair amount. So the ideas are not, out there. It's not just people watching, you know, it's not, those numbers aren't like researchers just like checking in. No, there's a portion that are going to be research and law enforcement, but that's far too many to be mostly that. Yeah, no, exa- that's what I'm saying is that I don't want I don't want to hear people come back and say, well, you know, it's a percentage of blah, blah, blah. Nah, it, it's primarily then users. And there are a portion of those people who will do online harassment, such as when the Daily Stormer instigated a, a troll storm against Tanya Gersh and caused havoc in her life. Like, you know, that it's also illegal in that case, but they had to file a civil case. But there's online harassment. But most people don't do what the person in New Zealand did or the person in Pittsburgh. Most of them don't do that. Most people I've known on the far right don't do that and don't intend to. Most people who believe in conspiracy theories, they're out there. Most people who don't do something violent with them. Same thing. Lots of people that have mental health issues and a number that have serious mental health issues. Most of them also don't commit these violent extremist acts. But you take some people, you put them in a dark place, and you give them a narrative of victimization and of a scapegoat and how if they get to a point where they have nothing to lose in their own minds, that they can go and, quote, do something good. Robert Deere is among those people, the Planned Parenthood shooter where he had the narrative, but he didn't act on it. And he also was clearly mentally ill. Like, he's diagnosed mentally ill. Mm -hmm. So not just my opinion. (laughs) But 
I, I've researched his case. And so the instigator was when he his girlfriend was in the hospital and he thought the FBI was killing her. Yes. That he thought he had nothing to lose, so he might as well, quote, save the babies and shoot up an abortion clinic. So everything he had the narrative for years. He knew about this militant anti-abortion group called Army of God who believes in murder in the in the name of Christ. Mm-hmm. Which we don't believe. But just to be clear, I think the the thing though that I struggle with with just just on the narrative thing, the only reason I'm harping on this is that and we talked about this with my obsession with true crime is that I I I do know a lot of different like serial killers and spree killers. And my, my thing is, is that oftentimes the narrative they use is not necessarily the narrative that they believe. It's, it's the thing that your narcissism allows you to justify your actions with. Mm-hmm. But in, in the case of, we're talking about the New Zealand shooter, it, it's the fear of, of refugees and the fear of refugees allowing crimes like like human trafficking and and murder to occur um but it is also it comes from a desire to destroy human life too and and so you may be justifying your desire with this particular narrative that may be but it's another case where it's good to not legitimize yes violent narratives and make them imminent yeah. What we know about attempted letter bombings and these Tree of Life shooting, those were not the only incidents during that time. Those were just the major ones. Mm-hmm. But more could have happened still. And, it, you know, there could have been more shootings. And thank God there weren't. And so even with an imminent threat being pushed with the caravan, and it's not that there weren't people coming to the border, but as we saw, they weren't able to get in because we have the border patrolled, which is what I expected to happen all along. But part of it, and this gets to uh, neo-Nazis like Christian Piccolini and uh, a few others I've read about, like there were also in some of them in dark places. Like when people get really depressed and conspiracy thinking can make one really depressed, I know this from experience, because they are dark narratives and they can put people into a place where they can say, I need to be somebody who's going to do something. Yeah. And for some of them, they rationalize that as something violent. But when you scapegoat peoples, like it's one thing to say that, yes, there are some Muslims who are radical and terrorists, that there are people in different groups who have power, like there are bankers who are Jewish per conspiracy theories. It's one thing to acknowledge that sort of thing, and it's another to say Muslims are bad and can't be American, Jews are bad and insidious and parasites, or white people are all racist, or, you know, like any of those things are not only not helpful, but it it is painting with such a broad brush that it really can't be true. Mm Mm-hmm. And that sort of demonization and dehumanization hurts everything. And it makes it feeds into marginalization and it makes it easier to exploit people in a variety of ways if they are seen as less human, as we had with African slaves who came here. And then after that, with the association of color and slavery, 
to where we have a very complicated history with African-Americans because of the legacy of slavery. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that that's, that's apparent with any, any group where there has been a, a group in power that, I mean, we talk about it in trafficking all the time, specifically in the American cases you pointed out, but I mean, in, in the series that we have, that we did on, you know, the trafficking, the continued trafficking, and also the continued exploitation of, like, indigenous peoples uh, in, in the world at large, and just sort of trafficking itself is a, is a form of othering. It's placing a, a person or a group of people beneath you and sort of your desire to, to profit. Uh, but, it, but it has repercussions. And so, among other things, we'll keep on harping on dehumanizing rhetoric and the problem that it poses. And I, I would hope that all of our leaders in the United States would get a grip. And uh, if media in general would also be less sensationalist, that would be nice too. As for the Tucker Carlson's of the world, I don't know. Yeah. So mostly, that was a hot take. My heart goes out to New Zealand. Um, I do like that uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister has talked not about not just about gun reform, but also of inclusivity within the country, and that, uh, if anything, this will make them be more receptive to refugees, not less, which is great. Um, New Zealand does continue to have issues with human trafficking, um, but as the recent tip report shows, they're, they're one of the better countries in, in dealing with it. Um, in their, their 2018 report, obviously, and 2019, you know, they're a tier one, so they're incredibly highly rated. But I, I think one of the, the great things, too, that they've continued to focus on with New Zealand uh, is within in law enforcement making sure that the law enforcement is aware of victim services, funding victim services even more, and preventing employers from harming migrant workers. And so this this seems like a state that, that's very well prepped to take care of its people and open to having other individuals come in and take, you know, and, and become New Zealanders themselves. So. Yeah, well, I've, I've seen how New Zealand can come together and how like it's a small country it really is mm -hmm. and like when their rugby teams loses or wins they feel it and when something like this happens i have no doubt that it it rocks them and it makes it easier for them to you know come together and choose how to respond but saying they might and actually doing anything about it are different and it's nice to see them mobilizing to take some actions I mean, even if you are concerned about demographics, we have to have a different conversation. I mean, yeah. same, same thing with, with, with immigration, both legal and illegal immigration. Like, we have to find a different way to talk about it. And I, I, I know there are plenty of people that are frustrated and who are more on President Trump's side in that they want more done at the border for security and they are frustrated that it isn't and who didn't like the Obama administration's policies. So right now I'm speaking to people on the right. Like I've heard well-meaning people who are frustrated with the state of things there. And for me, it's that I detest President Trump's rhetoric on it and the rhetoric of certain right-wing pundits and other things. But between Congress and everything else, 
it's it's just all frustrating. And yeah, and people <laughs> people who are trying to cross the border, people who are already here, people who are immigrants, people here who have been here in overstays, they're subject to exploitation. And yeah. And if you can't sympathize with why somebody would come from Central America, I mean, gosh, even even Eamon Bundy said he understands that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, this is another one, guys, where if you tweeted us, we're not reading it. So enjoy that, but be yep. kind to one another. Yep. And don't apply the Great Replacement to New Zealand. Just don't. It's dumb. Yeah, no, it's really, dumb. really dumb. It makes a mockery of everything that you conspiracy theorists believe, which I guess isn't so bad. But there's part of part of me that wants to mock conspiracy theorists, but then I've been one, and I know that doesn't help. Like, because anything where there is crazy rhetoric, and uh, I mean, if you've listened to me, you know I don't like Trump's rhetoric because I find it dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Like, there there are legitimate issues that are being pointed to. And there are frustrations. And if there weren't grievances that underlied these type of things, they wouldn't have a platform to make them more extreme or dehumanizing. And it's people, like people that are trafficked, that get lost in the middle of it all. And this is what happens. So. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. And uh, that's the most off-the-cuff episode I've done here. So hope you got <laughs> something out of it. And uh, we'll be back next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.